Saturday afternoon. How many of you were up at 3 o'clock this morning? Yo, yo, thank you. you. Did you catch this? <laughs> uh, I want to say at the outset, uh, my uh, heightened sense of appreciation for Michael McCarty's commitment. I really did not expect to see him show up here this afternoon. <laughs> because when I came into the meeting, the score was 14 to nothing, Mississippi State over Auburn. Yeah. 41 to 6 now. <laughs> Thank you. Somebody, I, I couldn't get it. I was going to give him an updated score just so he'd feel better. 41 to 6 in what quarter? 41 What quarter? 21 to 13. Do I? You're going to get the last quarter, man. You're going to make it. Uh, there's something else I'd like to say at the outset. Um, if you have people that have been taking good care of your room, uh, the, your room service, uh, leave them a few bucks. Uh, it, it's something that we oftentimes can come into a situation like this and we're in a room two or three nights and we don't leave a gratuity or an expression of thanks. Um, many of these folks are... Um, you know, probably low-income families, and so uh, I've just learned that it really blesses them if you leave them five dollars. Or uh, I think the going rate is like five dollars per day that you're in the hotel. But even uh, if, if you just leave five dollars, or if you just give them, and oftentimes you can say gracias, and and uh, they'll deeply appreciate it. Uh, what is ACM? Uh, we've been attempting a, a clear response or a clear answer to that now for 25 years. I hadn't expected to hear that question again. <laughs> and I say that for the benefit of you that are coming here, that are coming here, maybe this is your very first time, and you're saying, what is ACM? And we sincerely have been uh, addressing that subject for 25 years because we've never been able to define what it is. We can talk in lots of different terms about who they are, but we can't say what it is. Uh, there's been an inability to decline what it is, but there are descriptors uh, which paint a picture of what happens when we get together. And I'm going to offer my this year's version of it. For me, this has been a dynamic experience of doing theology together, often involving the exercise of amnamnesis. And if that's a new word to you, anamnesis is a Greek word which describes a way of remembering that's different and more significant than just recollection. It is remembering in such a way that you bring things that happened in the past into the present in a way that is substantive. And so when you're hearing these stories, whether it's from the rice paddies or whether it's from early days uh, in our history, uh, in our corporate history, in our corporate culture, 
when those are brought forward into this moment, they become yours. And, and you become part of that story. And so you're not an outsider looking in. There was a time of sensitivity about talking about things that happened 10 years ago or 15 years ago. And we were cautioned about doing that because we did not want people to feel like because they were not part of that story, therefore they are outsiders looking in. And so we exercised some restraint about talking about things that happened a long time ago. Uh, Paul Petrie and I can talk about 1971, Tennessee, Georgia Christian camp. He had, the, he had long hair and boots with fringes, and I had an afro. And I uh, wore patchouli oil. Some of you know what that is, don't you? But so telling these stories, the, the, the idea is we don't want to tell those stories because it's going to make new people feel like they're outsiders. And then we started realizing how important it is to celebrate legacy and how important it is to talk about history. And that is a biblical way of life. So much of what we have recorded in the, uh, the Old Testament and the New Testament is uh, calling to mind history and the truth of history and bringing it forth into this moment. Some things that happen when we get together, and I'm just going to be self-reflective for a moment, so bear with it, please. Things that go on when we are together in this doing theology thing. And by the way, you're all theologians. Theologians are people that just deal with theos, logos, or the word about God. So you are, if you think about those things, if you talk about them, you're doing theology. So at some level, you are a theologian. Say, I am a theologian. Because you are. And doing theology uh, together takes place within this context. Songs that we sing in worship that are creedal in nature. We don't think of them that way. Uh, we have not, since we've been together, said the Nicene or the Apostles' Creed, but the songs that we have sung are creedal in nature. And I was just reflecting upon Jesus has overcome and the grave is overwhelmed. The victory's won. He's risen from the dead. You could take that right out of the Nicene Creed and you've been singing it. You are the king of glory, the Lord strong and mighty. You are the king of glory, the Lord strong and mighty. That's a creedal statement. And we don't realize how much of that we engage when we come together. We just enjoy Pat and Coop and all the guys that get up here and they start singing. And then we start singing and we stand up and we start making these professions in song and music. But it's a, proud, a profound formative influence. There is something called lex arande, lex credendi, which simply means as we pray, so we believe. 
that when we are singing songs, we are being shaped and we're being formed by what comes out of our mouths, by what we're singing and by what we're hearing other people singing. And that's why we'll be singing sometimes, you are the king of glory. And we start off, you are the king of glory. And we hear somebody next to us saying, you are the king of glory. And then you're saying, yes, you're right. You are the king of glory. And you start to rise into that and you live into it. So it, it, it has a formative effect. That's why it's important what we sing. That's why important, it's important that we have musicians that carefully select music that is rooted in biblical truth and is oftentimes a direct reflection of Scripture, has that formative influence. So that's part of the atmosphere or the environment in. How many of you are familiar with TED Talks? A good percentage of you. I'm going to say 75% are familiar. Uh, somebody help me. T-E-D. Amen. And design, technology, entertainment, design. And for those of you not familiar with it, TED Talks are uh, a series of like 16 minute presentations. You got 16 minutes to download an idea and you're done. And so when you stand up to do a TED Talk in one of these TED Talk events, which costs a whole lot of money to get into, is that you're going to get a major download of a pregnant idea in about 16 minutes. You're going to get it. You're going to get the essence of it. We don't do TED Talks, and I haven't figured out what would be a comparable uh, uh, synonym, but I just said kingdom talks that are pregnant with truth. From, and I've listened to people. I've been paying close attention to what people are saying. When Brian got up and talked about stories being the bag that holds truth, That'll grab you. I mean, that is an idea. If you'll take it, it it'll mean something to you. And, uh, and when, when Gordon was talking about the fact that God likes to wrestle with people, he could wipe them out. He could, he could knock them out in one punch. But you, you, Gordon, you did something for me. I, I listened to what you said, and I said, that's right. He will take time to wrestle with people. And so these little nuggets that come out, these, these little kingdom talks, these little pithy things that just come out that just go deep, that drill down, and, and you walk away with it, and, and you take it home with you, and it has an influence, it has an effect. That's what happens. I've, I've, I've never come to one of these conferences in 25 years of us gathering together, walked to the airport and said, boy, that sucked. I always go away with a bit of wonderment at what bubbles up and emerges and what percolates and, and what happens. And it's all going in, uh, happening within the context of things visual, things that are audible, uh, things that are sung, uh, things that are described and word pictures, and then things that are presented, pregnant thoughts that come in presentations that people take out and over whatever kind of beverage you're consuming, talk about it and visit with it. And the next thing you know, it gets cultivated in and, and it becomes part of the conversation. And it becomes part of the atmosphere. And so there's a dynamic that's going on in the middle of this, all of this, 
with an openness and invitation that the Holy Spirit will come and get involved in the hearts and minds and the conversation of ordinary people like you and me. And so that what comes up out of that is something that's got more than earthly on it. That it's got heavenly on it. Somebody gave me a good definition of an oblation, which is an old English word. And if you use some of the old liturgies, you'll hear words like vouchsafe and oblation. And uh, oblation is an offering, something that is offered in sacrifice. And I love this definition. An oblation is something that is offered up to God that becomes more than what it is. Like loaves and fishes. We come together and we offer up our praise and we offer up our lives and we offer up our thanksgiving. It becomes more than what it is. And I can't describe that. I can't quantify it. But it becomes more than what it is. Another thing that happens when we come together is, and I've already emphasized this, fellowship that drills down deep, processing what has been heard. And I watch it taking place out here in the hallways, people walking, people talking, people sitting around, people, people having a malty beverage. They're talking about this stuff and, and not talking about it in some kind of intense way, but it just is a matter of part of the conversation. Thinking about what someone has said, reflecting on what they're saying, well, what's happening? That's getting cultivated in. It's getting churned in. And then, and then finally, something that I would point out, I said songs and worship that are creedal kingdom talks that are pregnant with truth. Fellowship that drills down deep, processing what has been heard. And then fourthly, defining moments that are life-changing. They occur within this environment. It happens every time. People that meet each other, that have a bonding, they become lifelong friends. Uh, people that encounter truths that alter the way they look at things, that prove to be an intersection that was life-changing, defining moments. So when people say, well, what is ACM? I said, well, I'm not sure, but I know we sing songs of worship that are full of truth. I know that we get kingdom talks that are pregnant. I know that we have fellowship that drills down deep, and I know that defining moments occur beyond that. That's what we've been doing. We've been doing theology for two days, processing the relationship between our story and how it relates to the larger narrative of God's redeeming actions in history. Some years ago, I read a book by Robert Weber. I think was, if it wasn't his last one, it would be one of his last ones, called Divine Embrace. If you haven't read it, I highly recommend it. And Robert Weber, in this item, he describes the journey from the early church fathers and their message, which was essentially an invitation to step into the awe and the drama and the wonder of the divine community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That the message was come in and be overwhelmed with the greatness of God revealed in Father, Son, Holy Spirit in divine community. The big 
story full of wonder, full of mystery, full of awe. And how from the early church fathers through history and particularly through a period of history that occurred in the 17th, 18th century called the Enlightenment where names like Locke and Descartes and, and uh, Spinoza and a list of other people came up that were great thinkers and philosophers that moved, a, 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 there was a cultural shift towards rationalism and towards logic and towards scientific uh, evaluation and response to life. And so mystery was excluded uh, logic, reason, and scientific processes began to prevail, a, a breaking down or compartmentalizing of life and reducing things down to what is manageable. And the effect and the impact that it had upon faith was a move from the grand picture represented by the early church fathers to something that was highly individualized and in etern internalized. So thus, I have Jesus as my personal Savior. Be very careful. I don't want to minimize the importance of that truth. What I'm proposing to you is there's more to it than that. Matt Davenport came roaring in here on Thursday night. He didn't have his luggage. He comes up here with his California flip-flops on. And he's feeling ragged and trying to pull his brain together and to say something that was coherent. And, and here's what he did. He gave us an invitation that I believe set tone and direction for this time. Understand the story, believe the story, and step into the story. You didn't think anybody was paying attention, did you? <laughs> it was an invitation not only to step into our corporate story, but also to understand how this fits into his story or history. Understand the story, believe the story, and step into the story. I'll tell you why I believe that is such an important invitation. I believe it was an in invitation to go from minimizing to step back into the wonder of the big story and to step back into the mystery and the majesty of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in such a way that we are once again overwhelmed. Step into the story. Step into it. That's the invitation. I felt like it was an invitation. If Robert Weber, if he had been in this room, he's gone on to be with the Lord. And he has his reward. But if he were in this room uh, being a conservative evangelical, he would not be sitting down. He would say, that's what I'm talking about. Let's get back to it. 
I'd like to offer a comment about why understanding your story, and I appreciate the emphasis that has been made on getting into your story, regardless if you're just beginning in the journey. Why understanding your story, taking the time to reflect upon how the author of salvation has worked in your personal journey. Some years ago, I went through an exercise called a timeline. How many of you in this room have ever done a timeline? There's a good eight or ten of you. I recommend that everybody do a timeline at some point. And what a timeline exercise does is uh, you sit with a stack of post-its and just as it comes to you, you just start writing down events, people, situations that have had an impact or an influence upon you. And you write those things down and eventually you take those and you set, you line them up in chronological order. And then you identify key times of significant change and what those events were. And, and through that timeline, you're able to get a pretty good picture of your life. And as I did that timeline, here's what happened for me personally. As I was doing that timeline exercise, I, I was coming across things and I was making note of things and I started thinking about things. And I started saying, wait a minute, the Lord was there. And then there were things that, were, that had to do before I made an, a vocal, a, a emotional, aggressive commitment to Jesus at the age of 23, I started recalling things that happened to me when I was 17. And then I started recalling things that happened to me when I was eight. And then, and then I, as I was looking at it and I was thinking on those things, I said, wait a minute, he was there. And so things, I, I used to think of my story beginning when I was 23. But the more I thought about it, the more I thought about prevenient grace, the more I thought about God at work and brooding over me and drawing me and speaking to me that went back into my youthful years. And I started recalling, yes, I felt something then. It wasn't in here but it was around me. And all of a sudden I realized that's part of my story. It's important to give time and attention to recalling what God has done in your life. And, and I'll just simply say this on an aside. Some of us would be glad to help you sometimes go through an, an exercise and creating your own timeline because it's something that will, I believe, begin to open your your recollection, your recall, and you, in a refreshing way concerning what God has done in your life. It's mining the acts of grace in your journey. Now, we've gone from talking about the need to enter back into the large mega-narrative, the big story, the grandeur, the splendor, the mystery that has to do with just being overwhelmed by the majesty of God. I'm, it sounds like I'm going to be antithetical, but I'm not. Trust me. St. John Chrysostom lived from 347 to 406 AD. Comments on Galatians chapter 2 verse 16 that a man is not justified by the works of law, 
but by the faith of Jesus Christ. I'm going to come back and talk about that in just a moment. He said about that verse, each person justly owes as great a debt to Christ as if Jesus had come for his sake alone. Because he would not have grudged this his condescension, though but for one. So that the measure of his love to each is as great as to the whole world. This is saying that Jesus loves each of us as much as he loves all of us. Now, you, you, you got to make room for mystery right there, all right? Because you're looking at me and saying, I don't see how it works. We love our families that way. We love each as much as we love all. Jesus died not only for all of us, but also for each of us. Your story is the object of God's personal attention. Not just the corporate story. Your personal story, which has already been pointed out tonight as unique and distinct. I just read Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. A man is not justified by works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. And I read it that way intentionally. Most modern translations read that verse, render that verse, a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith, but by faith in Jesus Christ. True attention to the Greek, it reads by the faith of Jesus Christ. I'm not going to go long. Hang with me. But I do want to leave this with you to ponder. The translators, particularly like the NIV, the ESV, and others, it says, through faith in Jesus Christ. I do not believe that does an injustice to the truth that it is, is our faith in Jesus Christ. But the accurate rendering of that text is a preposition that is of Jesus Christ. Evangelical thought will have a tendency to view faith as something that Christians have, but Jesus had no need of. When in fact... Jesus, in his service to God and his sacrifice for mankind, was the ultimate expression of faith. He did what he fought, saw the Father doing. He was perfectly obedient. And in the end, he says, into your hands, what? The cross of Jesus is the ultimate symbol of the faith of Jesus Christ. So when we understand that we are not justified by the law, but we are justified by the faith of Jesus Christ, that shifts the burden 
from how good my faith is to how perfect his faith is. And so my trust is not in my faith. It is in the faith of the one who was perfectly obedient to the point of death as the ultimate symbol of his faith. And so, when it comes to prayers like, sanctify them with thy truth, thy word is truth, do I want to count on my prayer for that? Or do I want to count on the prayer of Jesus for that? If I see, if I see, sometimes I pray, Father, make them one, even, you know, even as we're one, I look at that, some, and I look at the mess that the church is in, and I look around at this, and you know, say, Father, I can't pray with a whole lot of faith for that, but I can get on board with Jesus' prayer for that because I believe the Father is going to answer the prayer of Jesus. My justification comes by the faith of you. Do you know how much that lifts off of me? Because, folks, I have days when my faith wouldn't fill up a thimble. I have days when I feel like my faith is so weak. And listen, if it's going to rely, if this thing's going to rely on my faith, I'm in trouble. And you're in trouble if you're counting on me to pray for you. <laughs> but if what I'm trusting in is the faith of Jesus for my sake, do you think... I want to put my trust in the fact that I have an advocate who sits at the right hand of the Father interceding for me with confidence that the Father is going to listen to his prayers and answer. It's the faith of Jesus in which I put my trust and my confidence that justifies me before the God of heaven not my confidence in my own faith. That seemed like a subtle difference. Some of you are looking at me like, I'm not sure about that. Go, go to the linguist, check me out, think about it. Sometimes I don't feel like I have any faith, but I do trust in my advocate. Sometimes I don't feel like very good Christian material. Anybody ever felt that way? I mean, there's times when I've looked at it and I've thought, Lord, I don't, I'm not feeling, I'm kind of embarrassed for anybody to know that I'm identifying myself as your disciple. My attitude's miserable. I'm tired and I'm grumpy and I barked at my wife. And, and I just don't. Forgiven. Whose testimony am I going to listen to? What's coming out of my estimation of my faith? Or am I going to put my confidence in the faith of Jesus in the proclamation that comes from the heavenly redeemed, forgiven? Cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. Righteous. 2 Timothy 
That's actually 2 Timothy uh, chapter 1, verse 12. For the which cause I also suffer these things, nevertheless I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. That he is able to commit what you have committed to him even on the day when your faith feels like dribble coming off of your lips. There's something about the, the keeping faith of Jesus for you and for me that holds us firm when we're not feeling firm. What does that have to do with your story? It has to do with the fact that if you hand him that pen, he will faithfully use it in ways that's not depending on how good you are or how good your faith is. He will write. 1 Thessalonians 5, may God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. That's the faith of Jesus in operation. Not my confidence in my faith. I'm going with this. I'm going to go with the one who has faith to fulfill it, the one who has faith to do it, and the one who is going to be faithful to keep that which I commit to him. Hand over the pen, the author and perfecter of your faith. Get this. The author and perfecter of your faith is superintending more than you know. You will only recognize it in retrospect. I thought about writing the story and I said, you know, it really cannot be truly autobiographical. Because he's the one that's doing the writing. All I can do is report what I've observed and what he's done and celebrate it. So I don't know whether that makes it autobiographical or not, but I know he's the one that's doing the writing and being able to look back and recognize it and celebrate it and share it and talk about it and give glory to God for it and mix it with you celebrating your story and sharing your story, that is enormous. And I want to say something to all of us. I'm going to say it to my own heart first, but to everybody in this room. Be a good steward of your story because it's somebody else's legacy. Be a good steward of your story because it's going to be somebody else's legacy. And that's it. Lord, uh, we thank you. I, I pray 
O Father, that you will open our hearts and minds to see the greatness of the faith of Jesus. Often we feel the burden of having greater faith. But there is one who is the author and perfecter of our faith. The author and the perfecter. The author and the perfecter. And Lord, we want to go from trying to grab ourselves by the bootstraps and pulling ourselves up into a place of greater faith to looking to the author and the finisher of our faith so that his faith increasingly becomes our faith. And help us, I pray, O Lord, to steward your redeeming work and your redeeming acts in our lives. Help us not to forget. Stir us up by way of remembrance. Help us to be provoked to love and good works. Help us to remember well what you've done so that we can speak of it in such a way that other people are attracted to you. We are living epistles being written even as we speak. Help us to step back into the grand story and see how our story fits within the majesty of the big story. To that end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.